Welcome to the Qalam Institute Podcast. You're listening to Lives of the Prophets by Mufti Hussein Thamani. Imagine spending two weeks, every day, morning and evening, with the Prophet That's the vision behind Sirah Intensive. Every year, over a hundred people from all over the world come together to spend two weeks immersed in learning about the life and character of the Messenger of Allah, Muhammad wasallam. Sign up and get more information at sirahintensive.com. That's S-E-E-R-A-H intensive.com. The people of Ad became so arrogant, they became so full of themselves, that they began to believe that there was no resurrection after death. That once they would die, their bodies would come to you know, dis- disintegrate in the soil, and that was it. And when a person believes that there's nothing after death, then for them, the purpose in life ends up becoming life itself. Which means you can do whatever you want, enjoy it, amaze yourself, and as we used to say 10 years ago, YOLO. You know, just live it out. Amaze yourself. Because there's nothing, that you're, nothing to hold you accountable for. People who believe in life after death, all of us sitting here and also other faiths and other religions, what the beautiful thing is that it gives them a reason to work for. And it also reminds them that the things that you do in this world, you will be held accountable by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The arrogance of Aad reached a point that they make a statement. They made a statement. They said, وَقَالُوا مَنْ أَشَدُّ مِنَّا قُوَّةً They said, Who has more strength than we do? They made an open announcement to the world. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَوَلَمْ يَرَوْا أَنَّ اللَّهَ الَّذِي خَلَقَهُمْ هُوَ أَشَدُّ مِنْهُمْ قُوَّةً Don't they know that the Allah that created them is actually more powerful than they are? They're talking about their strength and how strong they are and how beautiful homes they've built. But don't you know that who gave you that strength in the first place? It was Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And as tall as you are today, there was a day where you were nothing and you were a baby, a giant baby, but you were still a baby. Everyone was a baby once upon a time and helpless and powerless. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who gave you strength. Now these people, because of their strength, they got pride. And that pride was disliked by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When a person has pride, when they become arrogant, then they can't take information from other people. Because they view themselves above that person. When, you, when they view themselves above that person. And you know, this is what happened with these people. When, uh, when um, Huda salam came to them, they said to him that you're one of us. You're, he said, you're, they said to him that you're just a human being. Why should we listen to you? Their arrogance didn't want them to listen to him. And they started calling him foul names. They called him a stupid man. Safaha. They called him a foolish man. And they said foul things to him again and again and again. And these people were just arrogant. Arrogance is something that we should all run from. Never have arrogance in your heart. Never think of yourself as being anything. Because your true value will only be known the moment after you die. The moment after you die is the day your value will be known. If you died on Iman, then Alhamdulillah. But if the second of your death, Shaitan came and stole your Iman away from you, then whatever it is that you're so happy over today is actually meaningless. Imam al-Ghazali says, each person should create humbleness inside them. The scholar should, the scholar should view the ignorant person, person and say, look how lucky this ignorant person is, and this ignorant person is better than me. Because this person doesn't have knowledge, he won't be held accountable the way I will be by Allah on the Day of Judgment. The ignorant person should look at the scholar and say, look how lucky this person is here. He has knowledge, he can worship Allah in ways that I won't be able to, and this person is closer to Allah than I will be. You know, just looking at it from that perspective, he has more opportunity if you wish to say. Okay? 
The elders should look at the young one and say, that look how lucky this child is. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has kept this child innocent. And this child is growing and Allah knows how much the child will use their life to worship Allah. And the young one should look at the elder and say, look how lucky this old man is that he has spent or she has spent her life in the worship of Allah and they are closer to meeting Allah than I am. The Muslim should look at the kafir and say that it's possible that this person may get iman before I die. The kafir should look at the Muslim and say that this person has better akhlaq than I have. I mean, whatever way it is, each person should look at other people. You can even look at animals and look at them and see how obedient they are to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So there's nothing really to be arrogant over. Arrogant people are disliked. Arrogant people are annoying. And if your friends and family haven't told you yet and you are an arrogant person, consider me a messenger, they are fed up with you. Go visit a counselor. Deal with your anger issues, get rid of the arrogance, it's a spiritual disease that consumes a person. There is a hadith of Qudsi, a divine narration, in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Al-Azmatu Izari, Wal-Kibriya'u Ridai. That greatness is my lower garment, and pride is of my upper garment. فَمَن نَازَعَ فِيهِمَا عَنِّي And whoever tries to snatch either of my garments from me, greatness or pride, قَصَمْتُهُ I will crush that person. That person is going down. وَلَا أُبَالِي And I won't even care about that person. That leaves you very vulnerable. So deep down inside, we all know that we are weak. So what's the arrogance actually even for? Don't we know that every time a person humbles himself in front of Allah, Allah elevates that person? The closest a human being could be on this earth is the lowest they can go physically while they're in sajda. That's the closest you can be to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The one who elevates himself like this is not loved by Allah. The Prophet said, مَنْ تَوَاضَعَ لِلَّهِ رَفَعَهُ اللَّهِ Whoever humbles himself for Allah, Allah will elevate that person. وَمَنْ تَكَبَّرَ وَضَعَهُ اللَّهِ Whoever has pride, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will put that person down. There are many incidents, many narrations regarding pride and humbleness. And these are very important lessons to learn right now because this was the mistake that the people of Ahad made. They became very boasty, very arrogant, very cocky. They were very full of themselves. And this is what took them down. If you're living in a good neighborhood, thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But don't view yourself better than someone else who isn't. Maybe that person who lives in a neighborhood that's not as good as yours has the ability to enjoy their sajda more than you ever will. So what's the arrogance over? Maybe today you have a bigger home, but that person will have a greater palace by Allah on the Day of Judgment. Because maybe that person continued praying to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Again, what's the arrogance for? Get rid of it. It's not going to help at all. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Qur'an says, إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يُحِبُّ كُلَّ مُخْتَالٍ فَخُورَ Allah does not like مُخْتَال. مُخْتَال is someone who views himself as something. فَخُورَ is someone who is very boasty over himself. Allah doesn't like that. إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يُحِبُّ الْمُتَكَبِّرِينَ Allah does not like those who are boastful. There's a narration, there's an incident that's actually been quoted by some scholars regarding the famous scholar and also... He's one of the pious predecessors. His name is Junaid al-Baghdadi. Some of you may have heard of his name, others may have not. He's a very um, important figure in Islamic history, and also he's contributed greatly beyond just Tazkiyah, in other sciences and other fields as well. Sheikh Hakim Akhtar Saab actually narrates this incident as well. He has a book called Tajalliyat al-Jazbah, and in there he, co- he quotes his story. That um, Junaid al-Baghdadi was actually a wrestler. He was a great wrestler, he was like the UFC fighter. And the king of the time was so proud over his fighting skills that he set up a stage and said that anyone that beats him in a fight, I will reward that person in a way that that person will never have to earn a dollar again for the rest of their life. 
So a line of people lined up. Everyone got ready. They started hitting the gym up, protein shakes, started doing yoga because they wanted to beat this guy. And the day when the fight day, when the, when fight day came, fight night was there. He got he got on the stage. There was a line of people. One by one they came. He picked them up, slammed them on the ground. Next guy came, picked them up like a chapati, patak patak, putting them on the ground, throwing them down. Now what happened was that as the line went shorter and shorter towards the end of the line, there was an old man that stepped into the ring. There was an old man that stepped in the ring. Junaid Baghdadi looked at this guy and said, Uncle, if I slam you, all of your bones are going to shatter. So maybe it's in the best interest that you and I don't fight. This man, he said to Junaid, lean forward, I wish to say something to you. So Junaid leaned forward, he said something to him, and Junaid just laughed at him and they started fighting. The fight started. Now when the fight started, it happened in such a unique way that everyone was waiting for not only a defeated man to come out of there, rather they were waiting for a dead body to come out of there. And in the fight, amazingly, Junaid fell on the ground and the old man put his foot on his chest and Junaid Baghdadi lost. No one was expecting it, you can imagine. The king got really angry because of uh, the disgrace. He kicked Junaid out and said, get out of here, I don't ever want to see your face again, you loser. And uh, kind of like Kimball Slice, he lost one fight and never came back again, right? So he lost his slice, he lost his, not slice, he lost his fight. And he was gone out, out, out of the ring. People started booing him, possibly probably threw some tomatoes at him. You know, when he was sitting at home that night, he fell asleep. And in his sleep, he saw a dream. And in his dream, he saw the Prophet ﷺ. What actually had happened was, when the fight was about to start, that old man said to him, can you lean forward, I wish to say something to you. And he said, yes, he leaned forward, and he, the old man whispered in his ear, you and I both know I am no match to you. I haven't come here to defeat you, I need the prize money. Because I am from the family of the Prophet ﷺ. And we, the Sadat, cannot accept zakat or sadaqah. My family is very hungry. Will you not lower yourself for the honor of your Prophet? And Junid Baghdadi, who was a champ, he said, you know what, I've messed up a lot in life, but this is one thing I'm going to do straight. Uncle, you got this. And he maneuvered the moves in a way where it seemed as if the old man defeated him, but in reality, Junaid Baghdad put himself down to lose. And he's sleeping there in his dream, he saw the Prophet ﷺ, and the Prophet ﷺ said to him, O oh, Junaid, you have sacrificed your honor, your nationally acclaimed fame, your name and your position. Throughout Baghdad, in the expression of your love for my children who are starving, as of today, your name is recorded amongst the friends of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then after this, he starts a very unique journey, which he was already on. He was always a good person, mashallah. He, there are incidents recorded from his childhood of his greatness. But then he kind of leaves that life. And then he moves on to a whole different life, a new focus, a new dedication. And he becomes the great Junaid Baghdadi. So lowering yourself for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for the Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, I recall once there was a fundraiser happening and the fundraiser who was doing the fundraiser, he said that I have never asked anyone for a dollar in my life. The only time I ask for money is if it's for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because otherwise I would never lower myself so much to ask person for something that's worldly. I only do it because there's a virtue in doing it and this is a sunnah of the Prophet and this is for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Otherwise he said to the people, I'm not a beggar and I, need, I, not, I do not need your money. So I'm not going to beg you for your money. I'm going to encourage you to give. Whoever wishes to give can give, and whoever doesn't want to give, take your money back with you and take it to your grave. 
That was the most sweetest fundraiser I had seen. He put the mic down, went down, had chai. People came up one by one, gave their money, and the fundraiser ended. It was a very, honestly, the, the speaking part of that fundraiser maybe was no more than three minutes. He just got up there, laid the smack down, turned the mic off, went and sat down. Humbling yourself for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We can talk about this, I can continue on and on. I remember once we were in madrasa, and while we were students, we were given the responsibility of cleaning the toilets. And I said to our sheikh, because this is the last year, the last year of the madrasa, you know the students that are graduating, they have the responsibility of cleaning the toilets. So I said to the sheikh, sheikh, we already have so much homework and so much hadith we have to read and so much mutala we have to do for the next day. Uh, we would have class for eight, nine hours a day sometimes. And then after eight, nine hours a day, we have to go and revise another four or five hours. So there's no time to sleep, no time for even tea. So I said to him, sheikh, is it okay with you if we hire some janitors to clean the toilet? So he said, Beokuf, hamara pas peso ki kami nahi hai. You foolish man, we do not have a lack of money. The reason why we make you clean the toilet is so that you learn to be humble for the creation of Allah when you become an alim someday. And as busy as you come, as busy as you are today, tomorrow you're going to get more busier. And when you get that busy, never forget to serve the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I'm telling you, cleaning those toilets was disgusting. I mean, cleaning home toilets is nasty, but then cleaning public toilets in a, in a, in a, in a boarding school? Oh my goodness, la hawla billah. Like you'd probably contribute to the impurity before you clean it all up as well. So humbling yourself. Again, this is something that's very important. Huda um, came to these people and he called them towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Huda was one of them. He was not a foreigner to them, he was actually one of them. Why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala send one of them to them? It's so that they were familiar with that person. They knew this person. And every prophet came with the best credit report that could exist. The best credit report that could exist. The prophet had it. They had a full 900 or 950 or if there's even a possible of a 1500, if that's even humanly possible, they had that credit report. These people had the most cleanest record out there. And these people were respected people. So there was no reason, if an outsider comes to their community, what can they say? This person is a big scam. We don't even know who this person is. Where did you come from? Where did you go? But if the person grew up in the community and they've witnessed this person growing up and they only have good to say about this person, can they call this person a scam? They can't. Now that's one thing. The other benefit of the Prophet coming from those people is that that person, the, the Prophet, understands the intricacies of the issues those people deal with. That Prophet has the ability to understand the intricacies. I mean, I, I, don't want to, I don't want to sound racist here, but I'm going to be very honest with you. An imam that is from the race of the people that he is guiding will be much more effective. Because that imam is able to understand their issues. You guys understand that? Many times this happens. Someone comes to me and says, Sheikh, I'm looking for an imam to help me. I say, yes, how can I help you? They say, not you. We want an Arab imam. And I understand it. This is not a matter of racism. It's because the marriage issue that you're dealing with, I may... I probably won't understand, I can probably understand a part of it, I can understand the fiqh of it, but then there are some things that are beyond the fiqh, some things that are cultural, that I won't be able to understand, because that's not a culture that I understand. Um, I was once in a community, in America, I was giving a lecture, someone said to me that you should go to uh, a community that isn't served as much, not the Indian, Pakistani, Arab community, which is usually more or less where all the lectures happen. So I said, okay. So I went to this particular community, and while I was there, I gave a lecture, and I gave a lecture on parenting. Uh, after the lecture was over, one guy in the gathering, one young man in the gathering, he asked, he said, Sheikh, 
Is it permitted for a father to make an incision on his son's hand and sprinkle pepper on there? I said, wow, that's really graphic. <laughs> I hope this is, like a, this is a hypothetical. He said, no, this happened to me. And he shows me the incision, it's on his hand. It's actually, probably just happened that day. There was an incision on his hand with pepper sprinkled on there. And I said, whoever did this to you, this is very, very, very wrong. So the father was sitting in that gathering. He spoke out. He said, Shaykh, you're very quick to judge. Why don't you ask my son what he actually did? <laughs> so I said to the father, look man, I'm just going to be honest. I'm going to level with you right here. There's very little a human... There's no way he could have really deserved this. You made an incision on his hand and sprinkled pepper. So he said, just ask him. So I asked the son, I said, what did you do? He went quiet, didn't say anything. So the father said, you better tell the imam because you started it and I'm going to end it. You tell him, otherwise I'm going to tell him for everyone. He went quiet. Then the father said, well, what happened was, last night, my son came into my home while my wife and I were upstairs sleeping into our living room downstairs with not one, but two prostitutes. He said, they sat in my living room, they all used drugs and got high, and then they fornicated as a group. I mean, that's haram on so many levels. So many levels. And when I heard this, I said, La hawla wa la illa billah. I really don't understand this right here. And, I, and that's when I realized, I remember this ayah, Wa ila adin akhahum huda, wa ila madina akhahum shu'ayba. And again, I want to make this clear, this is not a matter of racism. Every person, every human being can contribute to one race, to another. But then there are certain things, there are certain intricacies. You know, with certain communities you are soft, in certain communities you put the, the iron fist down. Someone said to me, one time an Arab friend said to me, that why is it that your Indian Pakistani scholars are so hardcore? So I said, that's the only language my Indian Pakistani people speak. You know, my, the people that I come from, if you go to them and say, this is this opinion too, that opinion too. We don't understand this opinion, that opinion. Tell us one thing and make it very clear. Our people, I said to them, that's, they need an iron fist. That's why the imam has to be like that. As for maybe many times in the white community, the imam is very soft and very easygoing. So you can't mix. It's very hard to find that perfect match. And again, I'll say a third time. It's not impossible and neither is this a matter of a purely of race, but there are certain intricacies that relate to cultures that can be understood by the people of that nation. Hence, Huda is sent to the people of Ad because of their understanding. Now Huda comes to them and he starts calling them. Okay? When he calls them, he says to them, What does he say to them? Ya, ya qawmi. Now the people who he's talking to, these people are arrogant. Yes, no? They're oppressive. They're outright murderers. These people are polytheists, they're mushrikeen. But even after all of their sins, what does he call them? Ya qawmi, my people, my nation. No matter how much they sin, he doesn't distance himself from those people because when he's giving da'wah, he has to create common bridges. And when you're giving da'wah to people, you have to create those bridges. Without creating those bridges, you can't do it. This week, I was coming back from this Maryland, I saw that masjid and the Turkish masjid, I boarded the flight. On the way back, I was sitting next to an old man. And his daughter was there too. So the old man looked at me, he was maybe 85 years old, in the plane. He looked at me while everyone was boarding the plane. I sat down, and people were still standing in the alleyway trying to find their seats. And he said to me, he looked at me, 
and said, are you Muslim? And I was dressed like this, and I said, apparently I am. <laughs> so he said to me, well, I'm an ex-Marine, and I love this country. And this is not, I can't be kidding you, this is exactly what he said, okay? And he said this out loud, you know, old, he, he probably has weak hearing, so he assumed that I had weak hearing too, and he's shouting it. And I was, my face was going as red as it could as an Indian person, right? I was like, oh my God, this guy, this is not good. And he said, I'm a Marine, and I love this country. And your people don't love this country. And if you don't love this country, I will kill you, and I won't hesitate. And everyone in the plane is looking right at me. And I was like, oh my God, this is really bad. And his daughter is by the side, and she's like saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm really sorry what my dad's saying. And I said to her, don't worry about this, it's not a big deal. And I said to this guy, you know, I don't hate our country. You said your country, I don't hate our country. And he said, what do you know about America? Because he's from Arkansas, right? You know, people from the South are really full of themselves. They think they're American. I said, well, I'm from Kentucky. He said, you're a redneck? I said, yee-haw. <laughs> I'm a redneck. I was born in Elizabethtown, Kentucky. And he said, uh, we went back and forth. We talked for a long time. And we literally, I was actually planning to prepare the lecture, the notes for this lecture on that flight. But because I was sitting next to this Wali of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I didn't open my laptop, I sat by my side, and we talked for a full two hours. At the end of the flight, he said to me that I'm very proud there are people like you in our country. This is where he ended. Two hours later, he said to me, I'm very, that I'm very proud there are people like you in our country. Because until you guys don't come and tell your story, we will never ever understand who you are. And I remembered a statement my teacher once said, until the lion doesn't learn to speak, the hunter will always be viewed as the, as the hero. Until the lion doesn't learn to speak, who will always be the hero? The hunter, the guy with the gun is always going to be the hero. Even though no one's ever heard the lion's story. What's my story? Why am I always the villain in each of these stories? Why am I always the bad guy? Because I protect myself? Is that what the issue is here? Khair, so here he talks to them, he says, Ya Qawmi. Then after this, he begins to invite them. Obviously, we know that their biggest issue was that these people were mushrikeen. He's inviting them away from their shirk, and these people start um, mocking him. They say to him that he's a normal person, you're just a human being. Uh, he's not but a human being similar to you. And they mock his mentioning of Qiyamah. You know when Hud mentioned Qiyamah, they, they mocked him by saying that there is no resurrecting after death. Once we're in the soil, we're gone. And then they called him a liar. That we view you as a liar. And then they called him Safih, uh, that he was a person of foolishness. And every time they continued saying this, Hud was patient and he kept going. There's an incident that's mentioned in the books of Tafsir that is from the people of Ad, and his name is Shaddad bin Ad. His name is Shaddad ibn Ad. Imam Qurtubi also makes reference to this incident. Um, other, other Mufassirin have also made reference to this under the ayah, أَلَمْ تَرَ كَيْفَ فَعَلَ رَبُّكَ بِعَادِ إِرَمَذَاتِ الْعِمَادِ أَلَّتِي لَمْ يُخْلَقْ مِثْلُهَا فِي الْبِلَادِ Underneath that part, they, they meant, some Mufassirin have mentioned this incident. And there was a person by the name of Shaddad bin Ad, And he was a king of his time. He was a king of his time. And his story is that his father was Ad, And when Ad passed away, he left behind two sons. One son's name was Shaddad, and the other one's name was Shadid. Shaddad and Shadid mean two very strong, firm people. 
Man ashaddu minna quwwah. You know they use that same word. Who is more stronger than us? Famalaka wa qahara. These two young sons of his, they both became rulers, but they also became qahara oppressors. They ended up oppressing their people. Thumma mata shadid. Shadid passed away. Wa khalasa al-amru li shaddad. Famalaka dunya. So the entire kingdom was now left to one brother whose name is Shaddad. And it's as if he ruled the world. Now, فَسَمِعَ بِذِكْرِ الْجَنَّةِ He then heard Ad, um, Huda alayhi salam talking about Jannah. Huda alayhi salam said to the people, don't disobey Allah, be patient, do sajda to him alone, be humble, worship him, Allah will give you Jannah. فَقَالَ He said to his people, make for me something similar of what he describes. You know this Jannah that he's describing? I want you guys to make me one too. فَبَنَا So they began to making it. And it took them close to 300 years to build this. And his life was actually how many? He lived almost 900 years. So they worked and worked and worked and made this. They made a very big city. Its, its uh, palaces were made of? Because these people, where are they digging? They're digging in mountains. What, what lies inside mountains? You have these, you have gold and silver there, right? That's where they're digging underneath the ground. So they're pulling out gold and silver. And within it, there were different types of rivers and different types of trees. And the pillars were made of pearls. I mean, it was a very beautiful place. When they finished making the paradise, he went towards his palace with all of his kingdom. And when he got very close to it, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded the angel of death that he wants to enter into Jannah, or his version of it, and no one enters into Jannah without my permission. Even though that wasn't a Jannah. It's his version of he's claiming it to be. So some narrations mention that he put one foot inside and he passed away. He didn't get the chance to even see it. And in one narration, فَلَمَّا كَانَ مِنْهَا عَلَى مَسِيرَةِ يَوْمٍ وَلَيْلَةٍ بَعَثَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِمْ صَيْحَةً مِنَ السَّمَاءِ فَهَلَكُوا That he was on his way there to that um, special ground of his, what he called paradise. And when they were one day away, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent a punishment, a loud noise, which destroyed him. And unfortunately, he wasn't able to go into his crib that he spent so much money on building. And the, uh, all of his resources, it was all waste away, wasted. So now with Nuh and his, and his people, they have this conversation that goes back and forth. Again, the Qur'an talks about it in great detail. They tell him, he speaks back to them. They tell him, he speaks back to them. He's humble, he calls them to, he calls them to Allah. They say, our idols have cursed you. He says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is on my side. And if your idols have really cursed me, then let them do whatever they want to. Then they make a similar claim that if your Allah has cursed us, then let him do whatever he wants to. You know, they, they kind of got carried away. When it reached at this point, um, he told the people that my people listen. I have no problem with you. You should obey Allah and be obedient to Him. When they refused, Hud السلام, uh, the Quran mentions that what happened was that the punishment of Allah started. Now the punishment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the people of Aad came in two forms. The first was the introductory punishment and the second was the actual punishment. The first phase of the punishment was that they experienced a severe drought, a famine. No water came down. And it was like a famine situation. 
Nothing was growing, nothing to eat. These people faced a, a, a severe famine for three years. Huda السلام, came to them and said to them, he said to them, O oh my people, ask your Lord for forgiveness. And turn to Him in repentance. He will, shower, he will shower abundant rains upon you from the heavens. And will add strength to your strength. Do not turn away as those given to guilt. He said, turn to Allah and ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for forgiveness. They said, They said, All we can say is that one of our gods has afflicted you with evil, and because you are afflicted with evil, that's why we're facing this famine. So they flipped the whole thing. They said the whole community is being punished, not because of us, but because of you. So then um, Huda السلام, said to them, I make Allah my witness, and you should all testify as well. That I have nothing to do with you guys associating partners with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then he said to them, Inni rabbi wa rabbikum. I rely on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I put my trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who is my Lord and your Lord. There is no moving creature, there is no animal, there is no soul which he does not have hold by its forelock. By its forelock. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has control over every creation. Inna Rabbi ala mustaqim. Surely my Lord is on the straight path. And then he said to them, فَإِن فَقَدْ أَبْلَغْتُكُمْ مَا أُرْسِلْتُ بِهِ إِلَيْكُمْ If you turn away, know that I have delivered to you the message with which I was sent to you. وَيَسْتَخْلِفُ رَبِّي قَوْمٍ غَيْرَكُمْ And my Lord will set up another, pe- another people in the place where you are today. If you don't obey Allah, you will go and another group of people will come. وَلَا تُذُرُّنَهُ الشَّيْئَا And you cannot harm Allah in any way at all. Inna Rabbi ala kulli shayin Surely my Lord keeps a watch over everything. Now after this three years when these people did not listen and Hud salam gave them clear warnings, then the punishment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala came. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told Hud salam and those who believed in him who were a small number to exit the lands, they left that area and when they left the area, a strong wind came. And the Qur'an describes this wind as aqeem. What does the Qur'an call it? Aqeem. You know what aqeem means? Barren. Like a lady uh, or someone who cannot give birth, you call that person aqeem as well. A lady who cannot give birth, you call that person, or a land that cannot grow, it is also called aqeem. So a wind that came which was aqeem, it was just like a brick that came and hit them in their face. There was no good coming out of this wind at all. And the wind was so heavy, it was so heavy, and it covered them, it surrounded them, it blew at them for... Um, that these people, the wind hit them for seven nights and eight days. Imagine a storm hitting people for how many days? For those who remember a few years back, remember in New York there was a storm that hit it? The winds were very heavy, everybody went inside, the trees were falling over, water was coming in. And that was for a few days, a few hours. This is for a whole week, over a week, eight days. A whole week, just beating on them, pounding on them, and pounding on them. Those who were outside, they got blown away. Their, their tents were blown away. Some of them thought that we'll go hide in our mountains, but the wind was so heavy that even it blew them out of there too. There were some of them that thought, we're strong people. If each person is standing on their own, the wind will blow them out. In order to save ourselves from the wind blowing us out, what we'll do is, 
we will tie ourselves together. So four or five people tie themselves together by doing that, you increase the, the weights, that way they can't be blown away. What happened? Allah says, uh, They all got knocked over. There was nothing standing in the, in the punishment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when it came. There's a narration that Imam, um, from Aisha radiallahu, actually no, there's, there's a narration in which the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, as narrated by Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhu, مَا فَتَحَ اللَّهُ عَلَىٰ عَادٍ مِنَ الرِّيحِ أَلَّتِي أَهْلِكُوا بِهَا إِلَّا مِثْلَ مَوْضِعِ الْخَاتَمِ The Prophet said, you know the wind that came against the people of Ad and that destroyed them? How much wind was it? Allah only opened the doors of wind equivalent to مَوْضِعِ الْخَاتَمِ like a seal. You know, like a small little stamp. That's how much of the doors of wind was actually open. A small little bit. Had the real thing come, had all of it come, then the whole world would have probably perished in probably many more folds. And we understand that, right? You know, there is a, there is a, a realm outside this world where, which, which they refer to as the black hole, which has the ability to just anything and everything is gone. And there's a small bit of wind is open and the whole nation is destroyed. فَمَرَّتْ بِأَهْلِ الْبَادِيَةِ فَحَمَلَتْهُمْ وَمَوَاشِيَهُمْ وَأَمْوَالَهُمْ بَيْنَ السَّمَاءِ وَالْأَرْضِ And that wind came and it blew across them and it lifted their animals and lifted their wealth and lifted their homes between the skies and the earth consider it kind of like a tornado and each of these people were caught in there and the punishment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala came Aisha radiallahu anha says that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was aware of this that's why when heavy winds came to Medina Munawwara he would start praying to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the Prophet would be worried that let this not be a punishment against his people. And we learn, Aisha radiallahu anha says, كَانَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمْ إِذَا عَصَفَتَ الْرِيحُ That when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would experience heavy winds, قَالْ He would say, اللَّهُمَّ إِنِّي أَسْأَلُكَ خَيْرَهَا وَخَيْرَ مَا فِيهَا وَخَيْرَ مَا أُرْسِلَتْ بِهِ O Allah, I ask you the good of it, and the good of what is inside it, and the good with which it has been sent. And I seek protection in you from its evil and from the evil that is in it and the evil that it has been sent with. So when the wind blows, even today, these are du'as that we should make. Ya Allah, if this wind has any evil in it, save me from it. If this wind is going to cause something to fall into my home or bring danger to my life or maybe drop a, a, a tree on us that may injure someone, Ya Allah, we ask you to protect us from that. Similarly with, we know the Prophet when heavy winds would come and heavy rains, he would make a dua to like this. After this, um, the people of, the disobeying servants of Allah from the people of Ad were destroyed. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about them, كَأَنَّهُمْ أَجَازُ نَخْلٍ خَاوِيَةً They were like hollow um, um, date palm trees, just lying down. Once the wind had gone, you know, Every one of them were just lying down. It was like a big mess that happened within the field. And they were all there and all that strength. Allah then asks a question that those people were so proud of themselves and they built homes um, as if they were going to live within there for eternity. Their homes were built like they were going to live in there for eternity. And Allah talks about this in the Quran. That Huda said to them that you're building homes in the world as if you're going to live within them forever. And I ask the same question to every one of us sitting here. That we've invested in our homes and our cars in a way as if we're going to live within them forever. And after the story of Hud and after our story ends and when we're lying on the ground, someone may come to us and read this ayah. That do you see for them any remains? Do you see for them any remains? There's no remains. They all go away. There are people that came before who made big claims. There are people that are going to come after who will make big claims. And all of them, they all will go away. It's just a nature, it's a reality that we have to learn to accept. 
Um, after this incident came to an end, Huda also passed away. Um, the scholars, they say that he served as a prophet for 50 years to his people. And he lived a life of roughly 400 years. Now where is Huda buried? There is a famous narration from Ali radiallahu anhu who says that his grave is in, um, in Hadramaut. In Hadramaut, that's where his grave is. And that's the more correct and common opinion. There are people in Palestine who also claim that his grave is there. And uh, there are certain celebrations that also take there as well. Wallahu alam. But again, as I mentioned, the more correct opinion seems to be that his, that his grave is in Yemen because that's where his people were. Those that claim that he was in Palestine say that after the destruction came, he left that land and migrated upwards and went to Palestine. There are also narrations that say that he's buried somewhere near Makkah because after the punishment happened, he went up north and went to the Kaaba and spent time there. And that's where he passed away. But again, as I mentioned, the more common opinion is that once the punishment ended, him and his people came back and they settled in those lands again. And that's where the second Ad also comes, which we'll talk about next week. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants us understanding of the deen. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protects us from the evil, and protects us from shaitan, protects us from his treachery and his, and his false promises and his traps. Wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahabi jama'een. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.